So let's pray together. God, I pray you'll calm our hearts right now. A lot of us are really busy, whether it's work, school, being a new parent. God, life is busy, and often we don't take time to slow down. But you've got us all here for this window of time. We could be anywhere else right now, God, but you've brought us to this room. I pray that you will make it meaningful. That the words you give me will not be mine, but they'll come directly from you. And by that, they'll encourage everyone in this room in the unique way they need to be encouraged. Lord, we pray for our leaders, especially for our president, our governor, our mayor. God, they all have incredibly important roles. And you've put them in those positions. We might not like them or agree with their policies, but you put them there. Help them, God. We pray for our service members in the military, our police, our firefighters, those who do so much to protect us on a daily basis, and we usually don't even realize it. And God, I know a lot of people are traveling in the next few weeks, in the next month. Protect our travels, Lord. And protect my mouth today that I may encourage us and exhort us as need be with these words. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you've been coming to LCC for a while, you know we've been going through the book of John. But because so many people have been traveling for holidays, and just because it's, it's a very fluid time of year, we've taken a pause. The last two weeks, Pastor Joe preached two, of, two different psalms. And this week, I'll be preaching a psalm as well to give you context. And I know for some people in this room, the calendar just flipped to December. For you, this is the most wonderful time of the year. When the calendar flips from Thanksgiving and it's the day after Thanksgiving, Christmas is in full swing. Or, if you live at my house, Christmas starts on about the 30th of October. Some of you know that. It's like the, the Christmas house there. Uh, some of you in this room love Christmas, and that's good. But for a lot of people, Christmas, the Christmas season is a hard time. And when the calendar flips to December like it did two days ago, a lot of pain and anxiety surfaces for people, potentially some people in this room. And loss is a big reason for that. I recently spoke with somebody who said that Christmas, the Christmas season, it's a time of lament for them. It's really painful. And it's because they lost their father and they lost their child in the same month of December a few years ago. And that's really painful. That's devastating. I wouldn't even know how to respond to that because I don't have children. Other people I know, maybe some of you in this room have broken families, devastated by divorce, 
And Christmas is not a time where you come together, but it's where you just bounce from house to house, appeasing everyone and making them happy. It's not a joyous time for you. And on the surface, when it becomes December, when the Christmas season starts, you put on a facade that it's the most wonderful time of the year, but deep down, you can't wait for it to end, to get on with life, to get past the holidays. And while a traditional Christmas sermon may sound nice, like Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2, that kind of sermon just doesn't bind up your wounds and the pain that you feel when you know that you're going to have to see the sibling who hasn't spoken to you in, mo- in months, or the family member who abused you when you were younger, or your mother or father who are ashamed of you because you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And in those moments, hearing about the birth of Jesus is sweet. It's so sweet. We just heard it from Tanner. The story never gets old. But for some of you, your soul just needs more than that right now. And that's why I love the Psalms. And that's why we're in the Psalms today. Because the psalmist understands the pain and suffering that we all have faced in our lives. And you might be saying, well, Spencer, Christmas is awesome for me. I don't struggle with it like the way you've, the the picture you've painted. And I would say this, this sermon still applies to you. Because at some point in your life, you're going to face hardship and pain. And some of it's going to be self inflicted, friendly fire caused by yourself. King David, who many of the Psalms are attributed to, a lot of his pain was self-inflicted. If you remember back in October, I preached on Psalm chapter 16 and kind of gave a context of David's life. He made some really poor personal choices. He raped Bathsheba, had planned for her husband to get killed in battle, and then took her as his wife. And that had some significant consequences he had to face for the rest of his life. And perhaps you've never done something that grievous in your life, but in the past week, the past month, the past year, you've made a choice that has had serious consequences, and you're still feeling its effects. But the psalmist also understands that terrible things happen to us at times that are out of our control. Take King David, I mentioned in the last sermon, he had spears thrown at his head. The king, who was his best friend, tried to kill him. The psalmist gets us. But more importantly than the fact that he gets us and can relate to us, he knows where to turn us, and that's to God. And in Psalm 40, David, who the psalm's attributed to, he's plagued with a trouble, with a burden. That seems like a theme of a lot of psalms. He's in trouble. I think that's because he knows life is hard and reading these can encourage us. But like many of the Psalms, he's not going to tell us exactly what is going on, what the issue is. You might say, why wouldn't you be more specific? I actually think that it's useful that he doesn't tell us. Why is that? He remains ambiguous. He doesn't tell us what he's going through. And by doing that, He allows us to connect 
with what he's saying. If we knew he was writing about the death of his child, or just getting fired from a job, or getting chased out of town by the king, we could write it off and say, ah, that doesn't apply to me. I've never faced that in my life. But the fact that he doesn't say that, and rather that we get a slight glimpse, a slight background into what's going on, we can apply what he writes to our lives. And we're going to do that right now. We're in Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. Here we go. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. David does not say how long he waited but rather how he waited patiently. I'm personally, you might be too, really grateful that he does not say, I waited 48 hours for the Lord and then he fixed everything. Or, I prayed and fasted for two weeks straight and then he did a miracle. Our nature is not to be patient especially in uncomfortable times of hardship. And when there's pain, discomfort, we want an answer now. I would say that's normal. Why is that? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. You might know them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Our nature is not to seek those things, but rather our sinful nature hungers for the things of the flesh. John the Evangelist tells us some of these in 1 John 2.16. He says, We seek after for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. John backs up the psalmist He tells us our predisposition is not to be patient. Patience is actually a part of being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus. It's something we physically have to seek after. It's not just going to come to us. We have to hunger for it. And hunger is a recurring theme we are going to see in this passage today. Not specifically hunger for food, but a hunger to do God's will. Keep an eye open for it. It's going to be there. But there's another key part to this verse, though. It's the second part of the verse. David says, God, he, inclined to me and heard my cry. David was vulnerable with God. And my question to you is, are you open with God? like David was when times got tough? Do you actually talk to God and pray to him regularly? Or do you metaphorically just shove him in your closet like your winter coat when the flowers bloom in April, only to bring him out and pray to him when the leaves fall off the trees and the temperatures grow cold and life appears hopeless? I'll just say it right now. God does not delight in being your afterthought, your emergency parachute cord. And you might say, oh, Spencer, I've got you. I've got you with scripture. Spencer, Psalm 139.3 would say, God is actually acquainted with all of our ways. He knows everything about us. So why would I have to seek him out if he already knows what I'm going through? 
Answer? Because he's a jealous God. He actually names himself jealous in Exodus 34, 14. God desires our affection, our prayers, because he made us. He designed us. He numbered every single hair on your head. But we have the audacity at times to say, I don't need you, God. Life's great. That's really arrogant. That's the pride of life that John warned us about. And that pride is from the world. The world tell you, you don't need anybody but yourself. That's why there's a whole section at the bookstore called self-help. Isn't that ironic? We need God's help. Not our own. Some of you were here last week. Pastor Joe preached on Psalm 141. And he mentioned an incredible quote from Martin Luther. Not the king. The Reformation Martin Luther who we celebrated at that awesome party back in October. Martin Luther said when life was good, when things were great, right? He would pray for about an hour a day. That's a lot. That's impressive. But he said when things got tough, he would preach for two hours a day. What Luther shows us is that when times get tough, we need to run to God and wait patiently for him, like David said. Verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You'll see this. The psalmist continues to be ambiguous. He's not telling us exactly what he's going through. But he makes it pretty clear the location he suffered was not pretty. A miry bog, picture like a swamp, infested, probably like malaria, mosquitoes, not cool. Not a good place to be. But interestingly, he doesn't say, he drew me up from my pit of destruction. He says, the pit of destruction. What does this tell us? He tells us that different times in our lives, we're all going to be in that pit. Because it's not specifically mine, or Connor's, or Mikey's. It's the pit. Could be anybody's. And this also tells us something incredible. Something that I realized a few years ago. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's a lie that Satan tells us. And it's the lie that you're the only person who's ever suffered through what you're feeling. That's what Satan does. He isolates us. He makes us feel like we're the only ones with a problem. When the person right next to you in the pew might have suffered with the same thing at some point in their lives. But he's going to try to tell you, he's really crafty, that you're the only one going through this and that you're not going to make it. There's another small detail I noticed. You might have too, if so, gold star. It's that David waited for God in the pit. 
in the struggle, in the pain. And when life got hard for him, he didn't compromise or give up on God. And God saw that and drew him out of the pit. But you might be asking, you might be going through something pretty tough today, and you're asking, well, Spencer, how am I supposed to do it? You told me to wait. You told me to wait indefinitely. So how am I supposed to do that? I think the Apostle Paul gives a great answer. It's one of those like home run verses. You probably know it. It's 2 Corinthians 12.9. You see, the Apostle Paul received a thorn from God. We don't know specifically what. It could have been like a, a physical thorn, but it was probably something spiritual or something emotional or something in a relationship. Paul asked God three times to remove it. He waited patiently multiple times, multiple amounts of time. God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Wait patiently. Rest in God's grace. Because in weakness, then you're strong. That's what the apostle tells us. And the beautiful part about verse 2 is that statement about the rock. We know who the rock is. Charlie and Rosie know who the rock is. They got a honey stick for answering the question last time. The rock is Christ. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. You might read that verse differently now. He drew me out of the miry bog and set my feet upon Christ, making my steps secure. And even before Jesus arrived to earth in the most humble means possible, in a stable with cows that smelled, in a tiny podunk town outside of Jerusalem, even before Jesus was ridiculed, threatened, indicted by his own people who were very tight-knit, looked out for themselves and for each other. Even before he had thorns jammed into his head, nails in his hands and his feet. Even before he suffered an excruciating death in humiliating fashion. Even before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Jesus is eternal. And that's why he made the bold statement in John 8.58 that he existed even before Abraham, who the Jews viewed as the greatest guy who'd ever lived. That's why Christmas is such an incredible holiday. Because it's far more than the beginning of Jesus' reign and priesthood. It's a road sign. It's a billboard of God's faithfulness to all generations. 
and especially to those who bow the knee to Jesus. But the psalmist goes on in verse 3. He talks specifically about the change that Jesus brought to his life. He says that God put a new song in his mouth. He changed his whole being, his whole disposition, his whole will to live. You could say he became a new creation. That the old passed away and the new arrived. It's the kind of change that happens when we step onto the rock of Christ. When we allow God to draw us out of the pit. It's noticeable. It's actually evident to each other. It's also evident when it's not true. You might know someone who says, you know, I'm a devout Christian. I love Jesus. But then nothing about their life or their actions actually indicate that. They say they're a Christian, but the only time they use Jesus' name is when they're trying to drive on Ward's Road at 5 p.m. Or they say that they love Jesus, but they don't treat their spouse respectfully or love their children well. Or they claim to love Christ, but only love his bride and show up to gatherings when it's overwhelmingly convenient. And may, or maybe you struggle with believing whether or not you're a Christian at all. You're in a crisis of faith. I think a great thing to do if that's you is to ask a Christian, someone in this room that you trust, if they see fruit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit that I referenced, because while faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, the fruit, the offspring of faith it's evident. It's obvious. Verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous thoughts and deeds towards us. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet, they are more than can be told. When I hear the psalmist say, I will proclaim and tell of them, something pops in my mind and it's a phrase. Come and see. That statement may be familiar to you if you've been at LCC for any amount of time. It's from John chapter 1, verse 43. Let's jump into that. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is a narrative about his life. If you, you weren't here for that, it's going to click. Light bulb moment in a minute. Just hang with me. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Said's probably not the right word. It's probably snarked. Ha! Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. If we're truly making the Lord our trust, like the psalmist did, we should have no fear in talking about Jesus. But unfortunately, only about 5% of Christians have ever actually shared their faith with someone who's not a believer. I don't know about you, but that is really depressing to me. 
And I pray that statistic is not true in this room. Because the global church does not need Christians who just keep to themselves and like, God, that's like something I just do at home and I don't want to offend anybody. The church needs warriors who are bold, willing to tell family members and friends hard truths. You may have just been home at Thanksgiving. You may be going home to see family at Christmas. Be willing to say hard truths. Hard truths like good people don't go to heaven. Or hard truths like the saying, God loves the sinner but not the sin is not actually biblically accurate. Or the really hard truth, the one that might get a plate thrown at your head, the truth that if you tell someone if they continue living in unrepentant sin that they'll go to hell. Those are really hard things to say. But we can say them when we pray for courage to do so. Because so much rests in the balance. When we say come and see, it's more than just pointing at somebody. It's an invitation into the deepest caverns of our faith. Into a journey far more complex than simply praying a prayer and earning instant fire insurance. When we say, come and see, to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, we submit to them our testimonies. We say, come and see the change that God worked in my life. How he healed me of my pride and my arrogance. How he healed my marriage. How he put a new song in my mouth. He changed the entire trajectory of my life. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is the life change that happens when you bow the knee, you say, that's it, God. I know you're Lord. I'm going to acknowledge that. Verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. If you're anything like me, you read passages very literally, and that's a good thing. But at times they're confusing because at times passages in the Bible seem to contradict with one another. And you might be realizing that right now. Because in verse 6, God commands the... Because you might be confused by verse 6 because you would know from other Old Testament passages that God actually commanded the Israelites to make sacrifices to him. Animal sacrifices. So why... Would God not delight in the things he's called them to do? It's because God did not delight in the Israelites intentionally sinning and then offering sacrifices just to like wipe it off, to fix whatever they had done. But David still struggles with that idea. The phrase, you've given me an open ear, What he's literally saying is, God, I don't understand why you wouldn't delight in the thing you asked us to do, but I trust you, and I'm confident you'll help me understand. I 
think this is so incredibly applicable to us today. Not because we slaughter animals on the altar or anything like that, but because right now there might be an area of theology, something in the Bible that you're struggling with, struggling to make sense of it. Maybe it's, for some of you in this room, Romans chapter 9. Yeah, I heard the laughs. The topic of election. Or some other lofty theological topic that you're still trying to wrap your head around. Right here in verse 6, David gives us an incredible blueprint to work through those things, to work through those struggles. He gives us the ability, he shows us how we can be humble. How we can open our hands and say, God, I really don't understand this. I don't really want to believe this, but it's your word. And I believe your word. Help me to understand this. I think David says this, he writes this verse because he knows that there's people in his community, his congregation, that are abusing God's grace. Here's the picture that David's painting of these people he's writing to. These people are, I don't know, they're out at the clubs late at night, doing spouse swaps, sleeping around with other people. But you know, right in the back they had their goats and their sheep on standby just so they could slaughter them and be good with God right away. Intentionally sinning. And then believing that they could just slaughter an animal and be right with God. And unfortunately that did... That kind of train of thought, like, oh, we can trick God and do whatever we want and still be good with him. That kind of thought process made its way into New Testament churches, like the church at Rome. When Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul, like David is here, called out the Romans for banking on God's grace and forgiveness rather than living a life of obedience. God cares far more about the posture of your hearts, being obedient to his word, than how many good acts you do or how much money you put in the offering plate. Or in the case of the Israelites, how many animals they could slaughter to think that they were right with God. And you might not be, have a great understanding of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and this is not the sermon to deep dive into that. But I thought of a modern concept, modern example that might resonate with you if it's just not clicking. Perhaps if you were anything like me growing up, a little child, you got into trouble at times. Maybe you pushed somebody on the playground because they cheated in kickball or something else. And your parent, your teacher, somebody in authority, they said, you need to apologize to that person. And you didn't really want to apologize because they just beat you in kickball. And you don't like that. But because they're the authority figure 
and you know that you'll get your recess taken away tomorrow. You say you're sorry, even though you don't mean it. That's what he's getting at here. That's what David's getting at, and Paul. It's the posture of our hearts. That's what God cares about far more rather than some religious ritual we can do. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Remember how I mentioned at the start that this passage was about hunger? Well, here's the fruition of that right now. David shows the hungers, the hunger that true Christians have. And earlier I mentioned if you're having a, a crisis of faith, if you're concerned with the, the fact of whether or not you're truly a Christian, there's another way you can assure yourself. It's if you know the Father, if you know Jesus, you delight to do his will. God's will is a topic that's thrown around so much in the church almost to the point that it's lost any sort of meaning. I'm here to resolve that today. From my research, I've, I've kind of found two, two ways that we see God's will act in the Bible. The first is called the will of decree. The will of decree says that this is what God wants to do, and it's going to happen. There's no changing God's mind. An example of the will of decree is when Jesus is on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, bleeding blood, and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. That's the will of decree, the first way we see God's will act in the Bible. The second is called the will of command. Command, it, it's somewhat logical. It's what God calls us to do. It's not what God actually does, but it's what he desires for us to do. We see an example of this in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians when he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Those are the two different ways we see God's will act in the Bible. In one, he actually works. And in the other, he leaves it up to us for how we're going to react to hearing his word. We have the choice to give thanks or not to. To honor God with our tongues or not to. With our actions, with our time, with our money, or not to. David makes it clear in verse 8 that he has a hunger to do God's will. And you might be like, well, Spencer, thanks for clearing that up. Now I understand. But what actual things are God's will? How would I know if I'm doing his will? I think Paul answers it well in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4.8, he says, doing things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, 
excellent, or worthy of praise. God's given us the will of command to do what we will in response to his word. And those are eight things, eight ways we can live our lives in his will. And my prayer is that as we enter this Christmas season, these are the kind of things you hunger for. That you hunger to do God's will. That the law may be written on your heart that you do not sin against God. Some of you, I would imagine many of you in this room, will be in somewhat of a different routine for the next four plus weeks. You may be home with family, traveling, out of work for a short period of time because of vacation, or out of your school routine. I would plead with you not to allow this to be wasted time. I challenge all of us in this time to use it to draw closer to God, to pray for a deeper hunger for his word if you don't currently have that hunger. Pray for conversations with God and that he'd show you the purpose that he has for you in this upcoming year. Amid great hardship, David drew closer to God. And I pray that for everyone in this room and everyone watching that our propensity is to turn to God when trouble hits rather than some earthly man-made pleasure that will never satisfy in the long run. Rather, may drawing close to God, being bold in our faith, strengthen us to, to do the work that he's called us to. Let's pray. God, you've given us this word today. The next step is application. All of us are going to walk out of this room tonight with two choices. To do your will or to blow it off. I pray that we all choose the first option. And it's not always easy to do your will because it involves fighting against our flesh. I'll be the first to admit that's really hard, God. But you equip us to do it. God, put a new song in our mouths. For those of us who need correction, convict us right now. And I pray these words will not fall void on the ears that heard them today. In your name, amen.